Lord, this morning we pray that your blessings would come. Lord, we also pray knowing that we are prone to wander. We are prone to squander the blessings that you give us. We're prone to misuse our freedoms and our liberties. Gifts that we have not earned, but that you have graciously given to us by allowing us to be born in this country. Lord, so many have fought and died for those freedoms. But personally, I've done nothing to earn them. I just live in the blessing, under the blessings of them, Lord. And they come from you. Why you chose us to live in this country versus others, we will never know. But we know that every good and perfect gift comes from you. We know that you hold all things in your hands. So, Lord, you have blessed us, and we thank you for the gift of this country. Lord, we pray for our country. We pray that you would heal our land, that we, we confess the sin in our land. We, as Americans, confess the sin of America, even if we, as individuals, have not committed that sin. Lord, we echo what uh, uh, the prophets and Nehemiah said when they said, our forefathers sinned and we confess that sin and we pray, Lord, that you would forgive us. We, Lord, as Americans, pray the same thing, that there are sins of our country that we confess to you today and pray that you would forgive us for and pray that you would heal us from. Lord, disease, sickness, Anger, wrath, violence, hatred, racism are all things that are currently hurting our country. God, we pray that you would heal us of those things. That we would return to those foundational values and morals that, that you, in your providence, saw fit for this country to be founded upon. But Lord, we pray we would go further. As believers, as the church, we would not trust in a civil religion, but in the faith of Jesus Christ, the only thing that can truly save. Lip service to the Bible or it is a standard for a moral code will not save anybody. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ will. And we, as the church, while we stand on the foundation of those Judeo-Christian values, we preach and we live the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. But that is the only hope for our nation. We work, we vote, we help, we reach out, we love, we forgive, we repent, and all those things that will help us be a more perfect union. But we know that the one thing we have to do is share the gospel. We have to be lights in a dark world. And every corner is dark without Jesus. So, Lord, we pray that we would be those lights. We pray that we would see our responsibility this morning as we come to the end of this section in Philippians. We see what we are supposed to be doing as believers, as a church, and how we are supposed to be ministering, and what we are, what sort of light we are supposed to be in this crooked and perverted generation in which we live. God, speak to us as we come to your word this morning. 
Hear your bride as, as we have sung. And come and bless us this morning by your presence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 2. We're looking at verses 14 through 18 this morning. And we are wrapping up this section of Live Worthy, the, the series we've been working on now for a couple of months, uh, the, the series within a series, the series within the book of Philippians. It uh, began way back in chapter 1, verse 27, with the first imperative of the book of Philippians. He began with, Paul did, uh, this idea of living worthy in your primary citizenship, or worthy to your primary citizenship. That's what he began with, right? If you remember back then, and you've turned look at verse 27, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy. Your primary citizenship is in heaven, and, and I, I, I've told you all before, I'm not good enough to plan these messages to land on particular Sundays like they tend to do. I did not plan for a discussion of citizenship, citizenship to occur on July 5th. Uh, it's just where we are, but that's how he began this passage, this section of Scripture, and that's how we're going to end it. Live worthy of your primary citizenship. And then he has talked about throughout the passage ways that we do that. He says, contending for the faith, enduring persecution, always putting others first. And then we come to the next imperative. Adopt the same attitude as Jesus. And we do that by emptying and humbling yourself, worshiping at the name of Jesus, Another imperative, work out your sanctification. And then we get to our passage today where we do all without grumbling or arguing. Maybe he's gotten to the most difficult part of the, the section. Maybe that's why he left it until last. So we're looking at chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. But I want to go back and I want to read it from verse 27 of chapter 1. So we get the, the feel, we get the run up. To that passage, we've, we've looked at it in little snippets, uh, little sound bites for the however many weeks we've been going through it. Uh, I want us to look at the whole thing this morning, or hear it one more time from Paul. So if you have a copy of God's Word with you, go back to Philippians 1, 27, and that's where I'm going to start reading all the way through chapter 2, verse 18. Just one thing. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation. And this is from God. For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had, and now hear that I have. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, 
if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. And here we are at today's passage, 14 through 18. Do everything without grumbling and arguing, so that you may be blameless and pure, children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation, among whom you shine like stars in the world by holding firm to the word of life. Then I can boast in the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor for nothing. But even if I am poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. In the same way, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. So that's the one thought that we've been working on for the last couple of months, from 127 to 218, and we wrap it up this morning, and if, if you... Go back and uh, you read that again at some point and you use your Faith Life app and you see the slide that was before the verses here. It does kind of the outline basically of how we went through uh, the sermons. You see all those points that we are supposed to be a part of. But Paul now comes to the end of it and he's, he's looking forward to some things that he's going to be writing about here in a little bit. He, we've, let me remind you that he has written to the Philippians in a in a, in a um, atmosphere is not right. In a tone, in a, uh, uh, in a an emotion of love and encouragement. This is called a hortatory letter. Uh, you hear, you should hear in hortatory exhort. Hort, that that word that's in there. It's a, an exhortation to them to continue what you're doing. But there is going to be, as is always the case with Paul. Let me redirect you in some areas. He's going to hint at it here in a little bit. Uh, as we move through the letter, we begin to see maybe why at the beginning of the letter, he points out the overseers and deacons in the church specifically uh, because of some things he's going to say particularly here in this passage. And then we get to the end, and we already talked a little bit about Euodia and Syntyche and their fight they were having. There were problems beginning to emerge in the church in Philippi. And so he is letting them, them know, hey, before things get big, take care of what's going on. I had a, a pastor 
in, in, in my past that would say, we don't like 500-pound gorillas. That, th those are way too big. We kill them when they're 50-pound baby gorillas. Now, if from the World Wildlife Fund, we're not really killing gorillas, that they're endangered and all that. We don't want big problems. We take care of the problems when they're small, is what he would say. Much easier to handle at the time. Paul's telling them to do the same thing. Take care of this issue before it gets big. Handle it now. And he just jumps right in in verse 14. He says, do everything. Here's our next imperative in the, in the uh, book, in the letter. Do everything without grumbling and arguing. He's telling them to stop the dissension that's already in their church. Go ahead and stop it now. Now, he hasn't mentioned anything. He, he hasn't gotten into any great details. And this is certainly, uh, the church in Philippi certainly doesn't have the problems that Galatia had where they had false teaching coming in, a false gospel that was beginning to split the church. Didn't have the problems that the church in Corinth had uh, with the, the sin of the church people coming in and beginning to tear the church apart. It was a, a different issue, and it was a smaller issue. At this point, it's just the 50-pound gorilla, and he's letting them know, take care of this thing before it gets too big. And throughout this passage, particularly for verses 14 through 18, Paul is going to echo a number of Old Testament passages. He's going to echo from... Uh, uh, Genesis, where God makes promises to Abraham. He is going to echo parts of the Exodus, where uh, the, um, in this particular case, where uh, the children of Israel are grumbling against Moses and God. He's going to pull from Daniel, uh, parts of Daniel, in, in what he's saying here. As he writes this letter, as it's read to the church in Philippi, they're going to hear these echoes of this is what y'all are acting like, particularly in this passage when he says, do everything without grumbling and arguing. Uh, so what does do everything mean, first of all? What's he talking about? Well, everything from 127 on. All these things he said do, which is why I read the, the, the full passage this morning, beginning with live worthy as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy, and all the way down, that little outline you have if you're looking at your, uh, your, your faith life app and the sermon notes there, that little outline on that first slide after the title slide, that's it. Do all those things. But he really is talking about everything else. Everything you do. There's nothing, church, he's saying to the church in Philippi, there's nothing that you should do in the church, especially but in life in general, that you grumble and complain about. Now, personally, I'm, I'm great at that. I don't grumble and complain about any... Okay, I'm lying. Um, there are things that we don't like to do. There are things we don't like to do part of church work, part of the body of believers. There are things that we don't like to do. There are jobs that the staff have that aren't our favorite parts of the job. We, we're not good at everything. Can I get an amen? You know, we, they're just, we're just not, and we don't like to do them. And, and, and if, if you bugged the office, you were a fly on the wall, which is still bugging the office, right? Um, 
you might hear some grumbling and complaining occasionally from Tom um, and Amy and Michael and Elizabeth. Yes, we all do it, that, that, but we're not supposed to. Do everything, all things, all this stuff we're supposed to be working on, do it without grumbling and complaining, without all the yin-yang. But th there's, there's more here than just, oh, I can't grumble and complain. Let's break those down a little bit. You knew I was going to. Grumbling, well, that was against God and the leadership. Remember, I'm telling you, I told you he, he's referencing Exodus, the grumbling and complaining that the Israelites did in the, the wilderness, and they were complaining about God by griping against Moses. Now, here's one of those passages of Scripture that I particularly don't like. And I don't like it because I have to stand up in front of a church and say, the Bible says y'all are supposed to listen to me because I'm the pastor. Which basically is why you're here on Sunday morning anyway, right? You're listening to the sermon and you're learning uh, from Scripture in ways that maybe you hadn't done yet. Or maybe you had. But this is one of those passages that says, I'm the leader. And trust me, I'm not comfortable in that fact. And you don't want to be the leader. I, I actually saw this morning... Um, Joe McKeever, y'all remember when he came back in uh, November and then January. Uh, I, I didn't commit it to memory, so I'm going to get a lot of the details wrong. But he, he posted that uh, uh, he had a, a pastor friend that said, take the people uh, that are com the biggest complainers in the church, give them a lot of responsibility with very little money to do it with, and very little, and I don't have this issue, very little salary uh, compensation, and tell them they have to grow the church by 200% in six months, and when that's not done, fire them. And they'll kind of get to the feel of what it's like sometimes to be on staff. And that is the sort of grumbling that Paul is talking about here. Well, that, that Tom, he just doesn't, you know, doesn't know what he's doing, doesn't, doesn't care. And that Michael, he couldn't preach his way out of a paper bag and all these other things that might come up. And lo and behold, that's what Paul is saying to stop doing. Because here's the reality. If, 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 and it's not just me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say any pastor of any church, if a search committee prays and says, we believe God is calling this man to be our pastor, and that search committee goes to the church and says, this is what we believe, will you pray with us and see if that's the case? And the church says, yes, we believe God is calling that man to be our pastor, and then it comes to a vote on Sunday morning, and 97, 98%, whatever it happens to be, agrees God is calling that man to be the pastor of our church, why did God change his mind two and a half years later when that pastor didn't do something or did something you didn't like? Did God change his mind? Maybe. No. No. So I'm not up here to defend my leadership abilities, my ideas. I'm here to say that God has ordained the way churches work and has said, church, 
stop griping, because what you're doing, oh, I forgot this part, when you gripe about the pastor the Lord told you to call, you're griping about what the Lord told you to do. So your problem's with him, not with the pastor. So, Paul says, stop. To the church in Philippi, he says specifically, don't be like Israel. Don't be like them when they grumbled against God and grumbled against Moses. Instead, do all things without the grumbling. Without, the second word he uses is arguing. We do like to argue, right? I mean, we're Baptists. And if you don't know that we like to argue, let me take you one year to the Southern Baptist Convention with me. Next time they have it when we can actually meet. We like to argue. It's, it's fun. It's, it's part of, well, some people think it's fun, apparently. Discussion's part of it, and, and working out things is part of it. But he says, don't argue with each other. In particular, this is a fighting to get your way. And, and that, that should be obvious. Paul shouldn't have to repeat himself, because that's what he's doing. Because earlier he said... Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of other, others. So if we're doing that, should we be arguing and fighting to get our way? See how those two things don't go together? If we empty ourselves, as Paul said Jesus did, and we humble, humble ourselves as Jesus did, and put others first as Jesus did, that's not going to leave a lot of room for arguing to get our way. As a matter of fact, Paul is making the point here, it's pretty clear, he is presenting the opposite of what it is to have the attitude of Christ. If at the beginning, in the uh, beginning of chapter two, uh, chapter 2, he said, adopt this attitude... He ends by saying, and this is what not having the attitude of Christ would look like, grumbling and arguing. But he's not just saying don't do this because, because I said so. Paul wasn't a because I said so kind of guy. The, the title of the message this morning is Unity for Everyone's Sake. Have this unified vision, this unified church. Don't have grumbling and arguing because you need unity for everyone's sake. And for the first sake, unity for the sake of the lost. Verses 15 and the first half of 16, 15 and 16a. He says, so be blameless so that, so that you may be blameless and pure children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation among whom you shine like the stars in the world, uh, by holding firm to the word of life, he continues that, that thought. Here he is echoing Genesis. Now, the previous passage, he was echoing Exodus. Now he's echoing Genesis, passages in Genesis. And he's saying here, 
I, last week I talked about the idea of you are saved, you are being saved, you will be saved. You're saved when you ask Jesus into your heart and you confess your sins. You are being saved. That's when we work out our salvation. And then one day in, when we are glorified, when we're with him, we will be completely and totally saved. It's also the idea of the already, what already is, but we are not yet experiencing already, not yet. That's what he's talking about here. Be blameless and pure. How many of us will succeed at being blameless and pure until the day we die? That's right, none of us. And yet we are blameless and pure in God's sight. We are saved, we are cleansed, we are holy, we are saints, the Bible says. We are already, but not yet. So we work out our salvation, he's told us to do. Uh, told us to be blameless and pure he says blameless carries with it this idea of the external what people see what goes on on the outside be blameless he says in this particular occurrence now he's going to say blameless here and then just a phrase later he's going to say faultless in this blameless he is talking about blameless toward god but even in our externals, in the things we do outside, the things that, that are obvious to people, we should be blameless toward God. So we treat someone with, uh, we are humble, therefore treating them better than ourselves. We are blameless before God. That is showing them our relationship with God. Blameless before him. Before him. Be blameless, he says, but then also be pure. Pure is that internal. And pure here doesn't mean like ivory soap, clean. It means innocent. It means not having intended even to do those things that you shouldn't be doing. So be innocent and be blameless. On the internal, don't think about it, don't plan it, don't plot it. And on the external, don't execute it, don't do it. Keep those two things, both of them, in check. But the point is that you be blameless and pure, children of God. He, that's the reference to uh, the folks in, in Genesis, who are faultless in a crooked generation. Crooked and perverted generation. This children of God idea, child of God allows our evangelism to be well received you are a child of god god says act like it another way to look at this is the name we carry should dictate our actions how many of you were told when you were growing up as a teenager remember who you are when you go out when you're doing things when you're out in the community maybe your daddy or your mama told you Remember your name. You know, we have a good name in this community. Live up to that name. Don't sully that name. God is saying, you have a name. It's mine, God says. You are a child of God. And that name that you carry should dictate your actions. Everything you do, every way that you respond, be blameless and pure because of the name you carry child of god not the name remember how we began this passage 127 as citizens of heaven 
So the name you carry is not American, not Republican, not Democrat, not Southern, not Northern, not White, not Black, not Linton. Those aren't the names that you are to concern yourself with when you are communicating or, or living in this perverted and crooked generation. The name that should dictate our actions is child of God. And in this particular instance, where Paul is talking about right now, Philippian church and these things you're doing, you will only be found uh, without fault. That without fault now means relating to others. You will only be found without fault when the internal bickering stops. Do you notice that? Don't grumble and complain. Don't grumble and argue because what you are doing in here will affect your relationship with the people out there. We think we can come to church and be one way and be something else in the community, and we can't. Paul is making that clear right here. So be without fault as it relates to others in this community, community of faith, our church family, and then you will have a relationship out there when you carry the name of God with you. In this, he says, crooked and perverted generation. No Christian has read crooked and perverted generation for the last 2,000 years and thought, no, ours is pretty good. No, I think we're okay. Every generation is crooked and perverted because every generation is without Christ, the majority of them. And so he's saying here, we need to understand, rather, that we will never be a part of a country anywhere in the world that is fully accepting of our kingdom citizenship. We will always be aliens. We will always be strangers in a strange land. We will never fit. We will always be square pegs trying to get into a round hole, and there ain't nothing NASA can do with duct tape to make us fit. I don't care what they did in Apollo 13. They can't get us into the, uh, the, the, the us square pegs into the round holes of the world or worldly systems. It's a crooked and perverted generation that will never accept believers. And yet he gives us the command of what to do. Go hide in a cave somewhere, he says. Go live in the desert and get away from it all. No. He says, shine. Make them wonder what you've got. Make them wish that they were not. Sorry, 90s, newsboys, Christian music. None of y'all got that. Oh, well. Oh, thanks. Somebody did, but just didn't think it was funny. Oh, the youth minister from the 90s. Of course he got it. Um, shine like stars in the world, he says. This is Daniel's language. This is what Daniel talked about. See, Paul's doing this. The light of the gospel and our belonging to a greater kingdom. That's what shines. When we go into the community, do we shine? Do people say, I think I've used this before here too, do people say, boy, I am so glad First Baptist Church is a part of our community. Those people shine in our community. I don't agree with a thing they say about religion. 
but they shine in our community. They are faultless and blameless and pure. Is that what they say? I'm not asking. That's rhetorical. Don't want an answer there, just in case. The light of the gospel is what? Is to shine. We are to shine our citizenship to a greater kingdom. That does not mean we pull back or retreat or don't be involved in what goes on in the world in which we live. That doesn't mean we don't try to make things better by taking on abortion, by taking on racism, by taking on homosexual marriage and the transgender movement. Doesn't mean we don't do those things that would make a better community, make a better world. But we understand that we are lights not for moralistic deism, the idea God exists, so let's be good, but we are lights for Jesus Christ that says the only thing that's going to make you good is a relationship with Jesus Christ brought on by repentance and faith. That's where we know we have to get. There may be steps to get there, and it may involve a lot of different activities and a lot of different things that we do, but that's where we are going. That is the light we shine. And he says you do this by holding firm to the word of life. We have the only word of life. When Jesus lost some disciples because they didn't like what he said, he asked the few remaining, y'all going to leave too? What they say? Where else will we go? You have the words of life. We, church, have the words of life. And to hold to that word of life is to be an example, both experientially and vocally, to a world without life. So our unity, our blameless and pure lives lived in the context of our church and our relationships as a family are done so for the uh, sake of the lost. Unity for the sake of the lost. But we also have unity for our present and our eternal joy, Paul says. Then I can boast in the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor with for nothing. But even if I am poured out as a drink offering in the sa on the sacrificial service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. In the same way, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. The first thing we see here is that unity in our church, unity right here, is proof of our salvation. It's not the only proof. It's not uh, the, the deciding proof. Well, if you don't do this, you're not saved. If that's the case, ain't none of us saved. That's, that's not the way it works. But unity in the church is a proof of our salvation. Paul here is not looking for an opportunity to brag. When he says, then I can boast in the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor for nothing, he's not looking for an opportunity to go up and say, hey, y'all see what I did with that Philippian church? Pretty doggone good, isn't it? That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about his, uh, their unity will then prove their own salvation so that his work will be proven to have been effective and necessary. He is bragging not on himself, but on God. See what God did in this church. This church that he's 
writing to at the moment, was beginning to have some issues, beginning to fracture, but beginning to pull apart. And then because of the work of the Holy Spirit, they were unified again, brought together. Look what God did. Whether I was there or not, he says a couple of times. When we are a unified church, without grumbling or arguing, we show our salvation to the world. We show who we are and in whom we believe. And it's also not just proof, our unified church is not just proof to the outside world of our salvation, of the faith that we have. It is also proof to believers within the church when struggles make them question their salvation, their faith, their commitment. For example, a church that's not growing as quickly or in the way we would like is always better weathered when there is a true faith and discipleship exemplified in unity among the body. When a church is struggling, that church can handle that adversity, can handle that struggle better when it is unified, not when it's divided. Is that should be kind of a duh moment, right? But sometimes we think when we're struggling, the best thing we can do is grumble and complain and argue. And no, that does not solve things. Unity is, uh, is the proof of our salvation. Unity is the proof of our ability to overcome. Unity, secondly, is our comfort during persecution. Paul talks about being poured out, these sacrificial images he's if we are poured out as a church if we are persecuted as a church if we are poured out we're poured out together it's a little like misery loves company i mean really but it's not just i feel bad i want everybody else to feel bad too it's not that kind of misery it's the the cord of three strands is not easily broken sort of unity if we are sacrificed for our faith, we are sacrificed in unity as a body. Still sounds kind of horrible. Let me put it a different way. The mutual encouragement of the family creates endurance. I may be per being persecuted individually, so it is the unity of my church family that comes together and makes me strong in that persecution. It may be three or four of us. It may be five or six of us. It may be half of us or it may be all of us. But regardless of how many, when we come together, we are able to endure those things. And we should be glad. Let me find it. To receive the grace, the grace of persecution. It has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, Paul said in verse 29 of chapter 1. Not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. We should be glad and rejoice if we are counted worthy to suffer for Christ. And we can take that and we can do it and we can overcome it and we can move through it and we can die if we have to if we do it in unity as a church. And the last thing he says here is the unity is the means of joy. In the same way, verse 18, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Unity is our means of joy as a church. We find joy in Christ, yes. 
But the reason we come together to worship is because the church is a community. I am individually saved, but I am not saved to be an individual. I am individually saved to be a part of God's community, the local body, the uh, local body of faith, the, the local church, our church family. And it should be a joy for us to be a part of that. And it will be joy when we are unified. Can I get a witness that a divided, divisive, and dissolute church is no source of joy for the body of believers? It's not. When a church is divided and fighting, who finds joy? Very few people, except maybe those who like the division and the fight. And that's not joy. That's sadistic pleasure. That's a, that's, that's a lot different. I can confess to you that there have been Sundays, not recently, when I didn't want to come. I had a job to do. I had a message to share. But I got no joy from my church family because I knew the division. I knew the grumbling. I knew the arguments. And y'all, even in the midst of this crisis we're in as a country from a virus that is causing us to have less and less socialization, communication, fellowship, partnership, that's what I have missed the most. I, I love to eat out. And we, we missed out on that for a couple of months. But the, the biggest loss in my life during the, the throes of this quarantine was the loss of our church family coming together. I'm, I'm, I'm not, not proud of it, but, but maybe if a quarantine had happened at different, in a different era of our church, I might not have missed it so bad. Unity in a church brings joy. And I believe we have that. Through persecution, problems, and pain, the church family is our source of joy, comfort, and hope. Don't mishear me. Our ultimate joy is in Christ. But again, we were not made to be, we were not saved to be individuals in the kingdom. We were saved to be a part of the community. And when we come together in unity, we find great joy. So many people, we, we talk to people every couple of weeks on the phone, calling various folks that we haven't seen now, some of them for, uh, since mid-March. We, we've got church folks that have not been out of their house hardly at all since mid-March. And one of the things they talk about most is being able to come back to church, be a part of the family again. That's joy. That's unity. So what should I do? All right, we, we've got, we're, we're to the end of it. We're, we're to, to the end of living worthy. What should I do? Well, first of all, do all the things. Do all of them. Everything. 
Everything he's talked about since verse 27, whatever Paul talks about in other letters, what Jesus has said in the Gospels, what the, old, the, 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 the standards of the Old Testament has set up, do it all. So what am I supposed to do? Well, y- you do all these things. And today you work on this one, and tomorrow you work on the other one. But, but when you're doing all these things, you don't grumble and argue. Michael, you don't grumble and argue. And when we don't grumble and argue, when we are committed as a church, as a family, to doing all the things, we become, we will be part of a unified, holy church that engages the lost. We will be a star that shines in our community. We will be a light to the world, a city on a hill. All the the metaphors that the Bible uses for us when we are unified. Be a part of that. And when I say be a part of a unified holy church, what I mean not is join our church this morning, though that's it. I mean be a part of the process. I mean be a part of the solution. Don't be a part of the problem. And then be joyful. Verse 18, the same way, be glad and rejoice. He used that joy word, part of some, some part of joy, three or four times here. Be joyful in the unity of partnership. What's the title of this whole series in the, uh, from, through Philippians? The joy of partnership. Be joyful in the unity of, par- uh, of a partnership, whether it's a, during a time of persecution or a time of peace. Be unified and find joy in that unity. Maybe this morning you're watching or you're here and and you need to be a part, you need to unify with the body of Christ through salvation. Not only are you not a part of a local church body, you don't attend anywhere regularly or something like that, but but you're not a part of the body of Christ at all. You become that not by joining a church, not by, by putting your name on a roll or giving a tithe or anything like that. You become that through a relationship with Jesus Christ. How do I do that? Well, we've got to go back to the beginning. It's, all, it's a very good place to start. And we begin with God's design, the way he set it up, the way he planned it. And his design was perfect, and his, uh, his plan was a relationship with him with no barriers, no hindrances. But then sin messed it all up. And that sin was not some nebulous, ethereal idea. It was rebellion of people. Started with Adam and Eve, and then we've all done it ever since. And so that sin is always against God's design, against God's plan. And our sin, just like Adam and Eve's, always leads to brokenness. Adam and Eve's choice led to historical brokenness, generational brokenness. But my sin leads to my own brokenness and the brokenness of others. But I've got things figured out, right? I'm I'm, I'm a pretty smart guy. I can can fix it. I'm going to fix the... But I can't. I can't fix the brokenness and neither can you. If you've tried, you've found regularly that you failed failed to fix the things that needed to be fixed in your life. Oh, you might put a Band-Aid on a, a sucking chest wound, but it, it doesn't fix anything. Uh, it doesn't even really make you feel better, but that's your idea of fixing the brokenness. The only fix for the brokenness is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can't live 
you, you can't have the mind of Christ, you can't adopt the attitude of Christ until you have accepted Christ. The gospel is that Jesus was sent by the Father that loves you very much, but he doesn't love your sin. So your punishment for that sin was eternal death, but God made a way through Jesus, sent his son, said, he's going to die for your sin. He is going to take the punishment. He is going to take the sin itself. Died on a cross three days later, rose from the grave, proving his defeat of sin and death. And now he waits for you to come to him through repentance and belief. Repent of your sin. I know I'm a sinner. I don't want to be anymore. I don't want the guilt. I don't want the burden. I want to give that to Jesus and believe that Jesus is who he says he is, the Savior that can change your life. And as you do that, you begin to recover and pursue God's design, part of which is adopting the attitude of Christ, emptying yourself and humbling yourself, putting others before yourself, not grumbling, not arguing, but putting Jesus on the throne of your life, your knee bowing, your tongue confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. You can do that today through a simple confirmation in your heart, a simple prayer. Grab Tom or me or someone else if you'd like to have more information about that. If you're online watching, send us a message here at the church. We'd love to get back to you if you'd like more information. If you don't quite understand it yet, like us to explain how you can accept Jesus Christ. We'd love to do that. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that we would live worthy. God, that we would be a church that is unified for the sake of all, for the sake of the lost, for the sake of the church, for the sake of our relationships, for the sake of our joy, for the sake of our ability to overcome the persecution that is real and will happen and is happening. And God, I pray this morning that if there's somebody who doesn't know what it is to be a part of a unified church, they would be today. They would accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. Become a part of that family, and then, Lord, see you work in their lives as you do these things in them. Be a part of us. Uh, be a part of this family, if that's your will. Lord, we pray that you would work on hearts as we sing this morning, as we come to you to continue to worship, lay it all before you, we ask for your hand to move here and move on our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I don't know what your decision is this morning. If you need to pray, right there, do it. If you want to grab somebody and talk to them, here are some things that you might need to pray about, accepting Christ, being baptized, joining our church, those sorts of things. But we want to be a, a part of that in your life. We're going to stand, we're going to sing for a few minutes. We're going to close in prayer. Amy's going to come and close this. Then we're going to uh, have one more song before we go this morning. But let's sing this morning as God works on our hearts. Mm -hmm.